I want to share with you a couple of comments made by children that were overheard in worship services. First one, after the dedication of his baby brother in church, Jason sobbed as his family sat down in the front row together. And his father asked him three times what was wrong. Finally, the boy replied, Daddy, that preacher said he wanted us brought up in a Christian home, but I want to go home with you and Mom. <laughs> One mom says this, I'd been teaching my three-year-old daughter, Caitlin, the Lord's Prayer for several evenings at bedtime. She would repeat the lines after me from the prayer, and finally, she got the opportunity to say the Lord's Prayer in church. The mom says, I listened with pride as she carefully enunciated each word right up to the end of the prayer that said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from email. <laughs> that's not a bad prayer, though. That's, that's not bad. Last one. A, a Sunday school teacher asked her children as they were on the way to church, and why is it necessary to be quiet when we get in that room? And one little girl said, because everyone is sleeping. Those are funny examples of not quite getting things right. And if I'm honest, there's some parts of my life that are like that. And worship has been one of those areas. For years, I didn't necessarily understand what worship was. And if you had really pressed me, I probably would have told you that worship was when we sang together at church. But worship is not primarily about music. It's about our hearts. It's about who or what we devote ourselves to. We're in a series called Living Church, and we've been looking at a book in the Bible in the New Testament named Acts. And in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, we're given certain practices and priorities the early church devoted themselves to. In fact, the verse that we have come back to week after week is listed in the first gray box on your notes. Would you read that with me this morning? It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This early church devoted themselves to the practices of preaching the word, preaching the Bible, and studying scripture together, to praying together, to fellowship and sharing life together. They dedicated themselves to celebrating communion, which we will do later today. And Pastor Jeff has taught the past two weeks, they devoted themselves to following Jesus in baptism. Which, by the way, was that amazing last week? 43 people following Jesus in baptism? Unbelievable. But what I want us to see this morning, what I hope we can see together, if you're following along in your notes... Everything they devoted themselves to was an act of worship. Everything they devoted themselves to was an act of worship. C.S. Lewis, an author and theologian, said this about worship. He said, I used to struggle with God's desires for worship. And then I realized that we worship everything in life that we love. He said, if you watch people, we praise beautiful paintings good meals, sports teams, good music, sunsets, and sunrises. And he concluded with this line, we worship what we love. And that's why, if you're following in your notes, worship is our natural response to what we value most. 
Worship is our natural response to what we value most. Worship is to give value or to ascribe worth to something. And that's why worship is that thing we all do. Worship is about saying this person, this thing, or this experience, whatever name you want to put on it, whatever you value most is worship. We all worship something. And that thing, it might be a relationship, it might be a dream that you have, it might be your friends, it might be status, it might be your kids, it might be some kind of pleasure, it might be an addiction. Whatever name you put on it, this person or this thing, that is what you've concluded in your heart is worth most to you, and that's what you worship. Worship tells us what we value most. And listen, I don't think there's a lack of worship in our lives. I think there is misguided worship and a lot of idol worship, but I don't think there's a lack of worship. How many of you watched the Final Four last night? How many of you have ever been to a football game? Baseball game? Music concert? Some of the most intense worship I've ever seen in my life. There is not a lack of worship in our lives. And that's because we're all worshipers. We're all worshipers. If you're following along in your notes, we're all worshipers. The question is, what do we worship? What do we worship? What is most important to us? What do we put the greatest value on in our lives? And to answer that question, the Apostle Paul provides one of the most succinct descriptions of who we should worship, why we should worship, and how we should worship, and it's found in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I invite you to open that. Romans can be found in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. If you don't have your own Bible with you, we have black Bibles in the seat back in front of you. Grab one of those if you would. Uh, Romans 12.1 can be found on page 789 in that black Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home with you. We would love for you to take that home. That's our gift. Now, while you're getting there, Let me say this, I I think whether you have followed Jesus for a number of years or whether this is your first time here and you're just trying to figure out who this Jesus guy is and whether he is worth your worship, I think the Bible has something to say to us all this morning. So I'm excited to talk about this scripture together. Would you read with me in the second gray box on your notes, it's Romans 12.1, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters... In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. In this verse, the who is pretty obvious, right? It's God. Paul says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. So God is the who. If you're following in your notes, the object, the who of worship, is God. Our worship, the thing we value most, the thing we love most, should not be the Cardinals or the Cubs or the Bears or our family or our spouse or our children. Listen, all those are great things. They're great things. But 
Paul is simply stating a truth that the Bible tells us over and over again, above all else, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. The object of our worship is God. The, the why we worship is a little bit harder to understand. Paul writes, therefore, in view of God's mercy. And, and what Paul is saying is that God deserves our worship because of his mercy. But, but to understand the why we should worship, we need to understand what mercy is. And so if you're following in your notes, the mercies that Paul is talking about, mercy is not getting what we deserve. It is not getting what we deserve. And Paul uses this word mercy here because he has just spent the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans explaining the mercies, the why God is worth our worship. And so for the next few minutes, I want to have the quickest Bible study ever in the book of Romans. And so remember, as we go through this, okay, as we go through this, this is the why. This is the why God is worth our worship. It's why we should devote ourselves to him and worship him above anything else. Okay? So let's go. Romans 1. We're told we are all created by God. Everyone here this morning, you were created by God in the image of God. We were made by him and for him. You and I exist for one reason alone. If you've ever wondered, I don't know what the purpose of my life is, Please hear this. You exist. The purpose of your life is to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ so that you can shine his light for others to see. That's why you are here on planet Earth. It's to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's it. But Paul tells us that instead of worshiping God, all of us have worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. We have all devoted ourselves to other things. In Romans 2, we're told that since God created us, we belong to him and we're accountable to him and that everyone on the earth is without excuse when it comes to knowing who God is. In Romans 3, we're told that all of us, every single person who has ever lived has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is essentially when we do what we want to do, how we want to do it, when we want to do it, instead of doing what God would have us do. Sin is a choice we make, and if, if worship is about value, then sin is about saying, I value this more than I value you, God. That's what sin is. And we like to say that some sins are worse than others. That's just not true. And what happens when we do this measuring of sin, we minimize the severity of sin. I've said this before, maybe you have too. Well, I just... It was just one time, just one word. It wasn't that bad. Here's what we need to know about sin. The penalty for sin is not determined by the measure of your sin, how great or how small it is. The penalty for sin is determined by the magnitude of the one who is sinned against. Here's an example. If you go out and you kick a log of wood, you're not very guilty. If you go and sin against another man or another woman, you're guilty of offending them. 
And ultimately, if you sin against an infinitely holy and eternal God who created you and to whom you are accountable, you are infinitely guilty and worthy of eternal punishment. The severity of sin's punishment is always a reflection of the one who is sinned against. Let me make this comment as well. Some of you, you might be sitting here thinking, man, you don't know how I've sinned. And you're on the other spectrum of sin. You don't know the bad things that I've done in my life. There is no way God would ever want anything to ever do with me again. And I want you to hear this this morning. No sin is beyond the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. There is nothing you have done in your life bad enough for God to stop loving you. Nothing. I love this quote by Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City. He said, We are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. In Romans 5 and 6, Paul talks about the consequence of this sin, which we have all sinned. He says in Romans 5, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The punishment that we have earned for our sins is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death and eternal death. And because we've all sinned, the Bible describes all people as enemies of God and objects of God's wrath. When we sin, and all of us have, we are spiritually dead and eternally separated from God. And what is worse, there is nothing we can do to get right with God again. We can't be nice enough, we can't be good enough, we can't give enough money away, we can't come to church enough, you can't read the Bible enough, you can't pray enough. You can't do anything to make yourself right with God again. Paul says we are dead in our sins, and this is really interesting. When the New Testament uses the word dead, it means dead. Not partially dead, not a little bit dead, not halfway dead, not kind of dead. It means completely dead, and no one who is dead can make themselves come back to life again. The gospel of Jesus confronts us with the hopelessness of our sinful condition and the hopelessness of our lives without Jesus Christ. So, here is a summary, if you've been following along during this upbeat portion of the teaching. All people know God. If you're following in your notes, all people know God. All people sin against and reject God. All people are guilty before God. And all people stand condemned for rejecting God. Remember, mercy is not getting what we deserve. And according to the Bible, we deserve death and eternal separation from God in hell. That's what we deserve. And in a verse that describes God's great mercy, Romans 5, 8 says these words. Would you read it with me on the screen? It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What happened at the cross was not primarily about nails being driven into Jesus' hands and feet. The cross was about the wrath of God that we deserved for our sin being placed upon Jesus. And when Jesus hung on that cross, all of our sin went on to Jesus like a flood. One preacher described it 
as if you and I were standing a short 100 yards away from a dam of water 10,000 miles high and 10,000 miles wide. When all of a sudden, the dam was breached and a torrential flood of water came crashing toward us. Right before it reached our feet, the ground in front of us opened up and swallowed the whole thing at the cross. Jesus drank the full cup of the wrath of God and when he had downed the last drop, he turned the cup over and he said, it is finished. It is finished. If you're following in your notes, Jesus died the death we deserved to pay for our sins. Jesus died the death we deserved to pay for our sins. This is the good news, friends, that the just and loving creator of the universe, the the God that created you and me looked upon hopelessly sinful people and loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and show his power over sin in the resurrection so that all who trust him might be made right with God now and forever. And this is a free gift offered to everybody. Jeff talked about this last week on Easter. If we repent, which is a change of mind, always accompanied by action, always accompanied by a change in lifestyle. If we repent, if we turn from our sin and say, I value that more than anything. If we turn from that and say, Jesus, I value you more than anything. In what you accomplished on the cross, you are forgiven and you are saved. You go from being completely dead to completely alive. You go from being completely separated from God now and to spending eternity in hell, which we all deserve, to being completely found in him, having the Holy Spirit now living inside of us and living with God now and forever. We go from not getting what we deserve to getting what we don't deserve, which is life in Christ. And if those mercies aren't enough, Paul says in Romans 8.1, it's on the screen, read this with me. This is a beautiful verse of scripture. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Jesus Christ, friends, we are free. We are eternally forgiven. We are rescued. We are washed clean. We are made new. We are recreated. There is no condemnation for us. We are not guilty. We are permanently attached to him. He is our life. We are born again. Our debt is paid in full. Sin's power is broken. Your sins from the past are forgiven. Your sins in the present are forgiven. And the sins you will commit in the future are forgiven. There are still consequences for your sins, but you are a forgiven person. His righteousness is our righteousness. Friends, when Jesus, when God looks down on you sitting in this room right now, he doesn't see a failure, a sinner, or a loser. He sees his son, Jesus Christ. He is worth our worship. He's worth it. I once heard a story about an Englishman who bought a Rolls Royce. It had been advertised as the car that would never ever, ever break down. So the man bought the Rolls Royce at a hefty price and he was driving it one day when to his surprise, it broke down. So he called Rolls Royce, he was far away from town out in the country, and he said, hey, you know that car that you said would never break down? Um, it, it's broken down. And so immediately, a Rolls Royce mechanic was sent by helicopter to the location where the car was broken down. The mechanic fixed the car and then flew off in his helicopter. 
And so naturally, the man expected to get a bill from Rolls-Royce. He thought it would be a hefty bill because it's clearly expensive to provide such a service. And so when the bill hadn't come a few weeks later, the the gentleman called Rolls-Royce and he said, "Um, I I just want to go ahead and pay my bills and get this all behind me. So the Rolls-Royce representative took the man's name and then he came back to the phone and he said, Sir, we are deeply sorry, but we have absolutely no record of anything ever having gone wrong with your car. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, consider the wonder of this. For all who come to Jesus and place their faith in him and what he accomplished on the cross, the God of the universe looks down upon you and he says, I have absolutely no record of anything having ever gone wrong in your life. And that's why in Romans 12, 1, Paul, I don't think he can hold it in. He says, therefore, therefore, because of all of this, because of all these mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Some of your Bibles say your true and proper worship. This can be translated as your reasonable or rational act of worship. What Paul is saying is that the offering of ourselves to God is seen as the only sensible, logical, and appropriate response to him in view of what he has done for us. So, now that we've looked at the who and the why of worship, I want to spend just a few minutes looking at the how. Of worship. How do we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God? And first, we need to know that Paul chose to use the word offer here for a reason. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word is used to describe animal sacrifice. And with an animal sacrifice, once you put the animal on the altar, it, it didn't come back off. It wasn't yours anymore. It belonged to God. It was out of your hands. And what Paul is saying, I want you to do that with your lives. It is not, your life is not yours anymore. You have been bought back at a great price. Give yourself, offer your bodies as a sacrifice that is living for God. And so if you're following in your notes, according to this verse, worship is a whole life response to who God is and what he has done for us through his son, Jesus. It is a whole life response. During this Living Church series, we've been talking about practices that a living church devotes themselves to while gathered here and also how to live church outside of these walls. So first, let's talk about how we offer our bodies as living sacrifices as a gathered people in this room on Sunday mornings. What we do here matters greatly because when we come together, we respond to what we value most. And he is worth our worship. One way we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, if you're following in your notes, one way we offer our bodies as living sacrifices when we gather is to come prepared. Come prepared. Don't just get your body here Prepare your spirit. Get your heart ready. Prepare for worship. We prepare for what matters to us. 
Football players prepare for the big game. Those guys last night in the Final Four, they prepared for that game. Business people prepare for the big sales call. Some of you have prepared to go on a date. Some of you have spent more time getting prepared for the date than the actual date itself. Some of you have enjoyed preparing for the date more than the actual date itself. Church is a lot better when we come prepared. Church is better when our gatherings are filled with people who have been pursuing God for six days before they get here. Imagine what would happen if each person in this room was seeking the face of God throughout the week. What would happen if we came together already worshiping, filled with an awareness of God's great mercies before we ever reached the front door? Maybe this is why in the book of Acts we're told that everyone in the church was filled with awe. Or why they experienced wonders and miraculous signs in their church. Maybe it's why the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. But I'm asking you, come prepared for worship. Spend time worshiping during the week. Read the Bible. Listen to music in the car that glorifies God. Spend time in prayer. Take a deep breath as you cross the parking lot and think about the greatness of the God you are coming to respond to. Come prepared for worship. And then I want to ask you, when we're gathered here, invest yourself in every moment. Invest yourself. Another way we can offer ourselves as living sacrifices when we're here, if you're following in your notes, is to be fully engaged. Fully engaged. Don't wait for something to grab your attention. Don't wait for it. Say to God, I am fully present right now, God. I am offering myself as a living sacrifice to you. Practically, what this means for us when we gather, we come with an attitude that it doesn't matter who is teaching, who is leading the music, who is praying, what song we're singing, what instruments are on stage, whether a song was written in 1807, 1907, or 2007. That stuff doesn't matter because the object of our worship is God, the why of our worship is his great mercies, and the how is we respond fully to who he is, regardless of our preferences. But I, I know this is hard. I know this is still true of me. I struggle with this sometimes. So I imagine that some of us in this room struggle together. Listen, we all get something out of worship. Something happens to us when we gather as a faith family and we respond to God. We are filled and then we leave as different people than when we walk through those doors. Something happens to us. But sometimes I come into this room and I think about myself more than I think about God. And I evaluate what's going on. I give something a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And when I do that, I become a spectator, not a participant. I'm not fully engaged. And I wonder, I wonder if as we evaluate the services, I wonder if God is evaluating us. I, I wonder if God looks down sometimes and he says, man, Brian today, I give him a thumbs up. He was prepared and fully engaged to responding to who I am. Or... On some Sundays, I wonder if he looks down and says, Brian, man, he thinks that worship service is about him today. I give him a thumbs down. I believe our church has grown in this area 
greatly. I really do. I'm thankful for Chuck continually teaching us to move from preference to praise, but we can still get better. I know we still have people who come on Sundays and they wait in the lobby for the music to be over. I know that there are people who just want to get to the teaching because that's the main event of a worship service. But the reason what we do together is called a worship service is because our entire time together is a response to who God is and what he's done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. All of it. Let me make one more comment about being fully engaged. Fully engaged doesn't necessarily mean that we'll all be raising our hands or kneeling in our rows or bowing out of reverence or that we'll be brought to tears. But let me say all of that's perfectly legal as we respond to who God is. I once heard someone say that how we respond to God is a lot like how people ride roller coasters. Some are full of joy, some are scared, some are hanging on for dear life, some have their arms raised, some are silent, some are loud. Everybody's different. But we can all choose to be fully engaged. And I I know this is hard. I, I really do. I know there's a lot going on in our lives. I know there's a lot of hurt that we bring in to this room. I, I know there's a lot of busyness. I know for some of you parents, just making it to church is a victory. I really do. It is hard to be fully engaged. Last fall, my wife Sarah was pregnant with our twin girls. And on November 30th at 30 weeks, both of my daughters died. And for four months, it has been terribly difficult to stand in this room and sing wholeheartedly. And there's some Sundays, all I could do was look at that cross and remember what Jesus Christ accomplished on it for me. And that's the only way I could be fully engaged. So it's going to look different for everybody. But we can make the choice to be fully engaged. So friends, no casual, no half-hearted worship, not here at Cherry Hills, because Jesus deserves our best. He gave us his best, he deserves ours. A living church is a church that worships as a gathered people. But worship doesn't just happen in this room. We spend a lot more time out in the world than we actually spend as a gathered people. So what does it look like to worship God throughout the week? It's doing everything, everything to draw attention to his greatness and his goodness. It's a life that glorifies and shines the spotlight on God for others to see. We started this whole year with a series called Whole, If you remember that, it was a stewardship series. And we talked about the fact that since Jesus gave us his whole life, he wants our whole life. And we talked about our time, our finances, our bodies, our marriages, our work, and our children. And and while that was a stewardship series, as I thought about it more, that was a worship series. That series was about how we offer our lives as living sacrifices. As we eat our food, we worship God by thanking him for what he has given us. As we sweat on a treadmill, we worship God by seeking to be good stewards of the body he's given us. As we work, we do our work to the best of our ability, worshiping God by giving our best to our employers or our families or our kids. As we spend our money, we ask, will this expense shine the light on Jesus? The secret to a lifestyle of worship, if you're following along in your notes, do everything as if you were doing it for Jesus. 
Do everything as if you were doing it for Jesus. And that's why worship isn't just the time we sing in church. It's not just when we gather here on Sundays. We can live total lives of worship. And we're going to mess up. We're not always going to get this right. But we can live lives of worship. We can live in response to who God is and what he's done for us through his son, Jesus. I love how the message paraphrase states Romans 12. We're going to put it on the screen. Would you read this with me? It speaks to this living worship idea. So read this with me. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Do you know what God desires most from you? Do you? It's the one thing no other person on earth can give him. If you are following along in your notes, your worship is the one thing that no one else can give to God. Nobody can do it for you. Brothers and sisters, we were created to worship. We are all worshipers. The question is, what are we going to worship? What are we going to put our greatest value on? Who or what are we going to devote ourselves to? And so now, for the rest of the service, we want to practice this. We want to practice together, responding to who God is and what he has done for us through his son, Jesus. Let me say the words of Paul again. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's great mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual, this is your true, this is your proper, this is your logical act of worship. He is worth our worship. He's worth it. He is worth it.